There they are. Turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. We're going to be at the end of that chapter today, beginning in verse 35 here in just a moment. But let me ask you a question. What are your greatest fears? I remember my earliest fear, like a lot of kids, I was afraid of the dark. Anybody else afraid of the dark? Not now, but maybe when you were a kid. And it wasn't leaving a nightlight on or a closet light on that I needed to fall asleep. I needed the light on, the major overhead light to be on. I hated the dark. Pretty common for kids to be afraid of the dark. What were you afraid of? What are you afraid of? The thing people are actually most afraid of is this, what I'm doing right now. Glossophobia. It's the fear of public speaking. Maybe some of you suffer from that. There's also acrophobia. Anybody know what acrophobia is? Fear of heights. Fear of heights. Uh, Pogonophobia. This was a new one to me. Pogonophobia. Fear of beards. Fear of beards. Yeah, kind of strange. Anemophobia. If you live in Enid and you have anemophobia, you're in the wrong place. Fear of wind. It's the fear of the wind. Xenophobia. This is a fear of people different from you. So different cultures, cross-cultural situations, multicultural settings, um, whatever. Fear of people different from you. Here's a tricky one. Triskaidekaphobia. Anyone know this one? It's fear of the number 13. So 13th floor, 13th row on an airplane, 13th day on the calendar. You're fearful of that. And then thanatophobia. Pretty common one, fear of death. And it's interesting to me that more people are afraid of public speaking than they are of dying. And that means at a funeral, people would rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy, if you think about it. (laughs) It's an old Jerry Seinfeld joke there. But in our study today, you'll see the primary subject of the narrative in front of us is, in fact, fear. And fear is a subject we can all connect with, I think. We all fear something, don't we? For kids, it might be the dark. For teenagers, it's rejection. For young adults, it might be the future. For aging adults, it can be any number of things. But it's often the fear of loss. Losing money, losing influence, losing security, losing a child, losing a parent, losing an opportunity. Fear of loss is a really big thing. I read a Bible commentator this week. He said this, and I think he's exactly right. Faith and fear are mutual exclusives. Say it again. Faith and fear are mutual exclusives. Think about it. Moses, he struggled with fear. Afraid he couldn't lead. Afraid he couldn't speak. Afraid he was the wrong guy to stare down Pharaoh. So starting out at least, Moses' fear was an impediment to having faith. Conversely, Think about David. David's faith conquered fear. David charged the Philistine army not because he was braver than most or a better fighter than most. He was a kid. He charged Goliath with a sling and five stones because he had faith that God would fight for him. And then, of course, there's Jonah. Jonah was xenophobic. He was afraid of the Ninevites. They were a wicked people, and he did not want God to show them mercy. So rather than in faith obey God and go to Nineveh, Jonah boarded a boat to Tarshish, the exact opposite direction from where God was calling him. And we're going to circle back to Jonah in a few minutes. 
But first, let's do a little review and sort of set up today's text in Mark chapter 4. One of the things I've been saying throughout our study of Mark is that the writer of this gospel, John Mark, is portraying Jesus as authoritative king. Thus, the title of our sermon series, King Jesus. And I chose that title because at least the first half of the book is dedicated to the kingly authority of Jesus Christ. You remember one of the first things said of Jesus when he arrived on the scene, chapter 1, it was this. They said, this is a man who teaches us with authority. His teaching was different from the scribes. It had authority. So it's not that the scribes were unpolished teachers or, or even unfluential teachers. No, they just didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit fueling their words, fueling their teachers, or their teaching. So when Jesus showed up, that lack of power in the scribes, it became so, so obvious. And it was because Jesus' teaching had divine authority. And his authority didn't stop at teaching. To validate his authoritative teaching, Jesus performed miracles. So in healing a leper, he displayed authority over physical sickness and disease. In driving out demons, he established his authority over the spiritual realm. In in picking grain on the Sabbath day and and healing a man's withered hand on the Sabbath day, Jesus proclaimed that he was Lord of the Sabbath. He had authority over all religion. And as we've seen, these, these miracles, they drew crowds that numbered in the thousands, if not tens of thousands. And with crowds like, like, like that, Jesus would seize the opportunity to teach. He says at the beginning that that's why he has come out, to teach. And that's what he's just finished doing as we arrive at the end of chapter 4. He's finished an extended time of teaching. And in chapter 4, it's been a particular kind of teaching. Jesus has been teaching in parables. In these initial parables, Mark calls them parables of the kingdom. You remember that? And in the last of these kingdom parables that we find in chapter 4, Jesus has just said that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And in saying that, in using that particular metaphor, he's saying that the kingdom of God is like the smallest of all seeds that you've ever heard of. A seed as small as a grain of sand, but it's going to grow. It's going to grow huge. The kingdom of God will be massively out of proportion to its original size. And as he finished the parable, and as he drew the disciples in closer so he could explain this teaching, he no doubt explained to them that the kingdom he was establishing, it was going to be worldwide. It wasn't just going to be a Jewish kingdom. It wasn't just going to be a kingdom that freed the Jews from Roman occupation. It wasn't going to be a kingdom of of independence and prosperity necessarily. It was going to be a global movement, a movement that would transcend language and geography and culture and time and custom. It was going to be a thing called the church. And these 12 men were going to play a huge role in seeing the movement established. So as we get to the end of chapter 4, Jesus has taught all day. I'm not sure when the day started exactly. I'm inclined to think that it started in the middle of chapter 3 when the religious leaders from Jerusalem had come and and claimed that Jesus did his miracles in in the authority and in the power of Satan. But nevertheless, the day is coming to now an end. The sun is beginning to go down, and we pick up our story in verse 35. So chapter 4, 
verse 35. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, On that day, when evening had come, he, he being Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? God bless the reading of his word. Once again, Mark sets the scene for us. We have Jesus and the disciples pulling up anchor from this area that's on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, probably an area just west of Capernaum. And remember, Jesus has been teaching a crowd from a boat on the water, and so now they are in that same boat headed across the lake. And you remember the lake is about seven miles Across, So it's referred to as a sea, but it's more like a large lake. And we're not told exactly where they're crossing over to, not yet. But the command of Jesus is to cross over to the other side. And it's the details that are introduced in the setting of this whole scene that I think helps solidify the eyewitness nature of this account. Only someone who had been there and retold this story a dozen or so, so times, someone like Peter... Only someone that was an eyewitness would have included details like, like what Jesus said when they got in the boat. Details like that it was evening. Details that Jesus was just as he was, that, that he didn't take anything along with him for the journey. That other boats were with them. That Jesus' placement in the boat was at the stern, that he was asleep, and not just asleep, but asleep on a cushion, on a pillow. In his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, Bible scholar Richard Bauckham points out, he says, the sign of an eyewitness account is irrelevant detail. And there's certainly a lot of that in the setting of this whole scene. Peter's telling of this story had been done with vivid but irrelevant detail. And that's how Mark is recording it for us. And amidst those details, there is a certain word that shows up three times, and it really shapes this story. It's almost as if Mark was thinking of those who would later teach this section of Scripture because he used the word great, you might have noticed it, he used it three times. And in so doing, he establishes three clear points. In verse 37, he tells of a great storm. In verse 39, a great calm. And in verse 41, a great fear. So those are, those are going to constitute our outline for today. A great storm, a great calm, a great fear. Let's start in verses 37 and 38 with a great storm. Just circling back to, ge- to geography, the Sea of Galilee sits at 682 feet below sea level. It's the lowest freshwater lake on earth, 
and it's a body of water surrounded by hills and mountains on virtually every side. 30 miles to the north, so in the distance from here to about Medford, you have Mount Hermon, a mountain with an, ele- an elevation of 9,200 feet. That's almost a 10,000 feet, feet elevation gain in about 30 miles. You also have a very arid climate to the east and the south, and then a, a moist sort of Mediterranean climate to the west. And all these geographic features converge at the Sea of Galilee. And with this lake being so far below actual sea level, what you have is this basin effect that's been created. So when the winds blow in from different directions, cool winds off Mount Hermon and strong dry desert winds from the east and and those moist ocean winds off the Mediterranean, they all collide with great volatility and they swirl around this basin. And what that does is it kicks up some pretty wicked storms. During one of these frequent wind events, waves on the lake have been reported up to 15 feet high. So very tough swells to navigate in just a modest fishing boat. So the fishermen in the boat, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they would have been very familiar with the sea's behavior. But even with all their experience, we get this impression that the storm takes them completely off guard, partly because of its immense strength, and also because storms usually didn't kick up at night. This is one of the reasons they did their fishing at night. The sea was almost always calmer in the night and in the morning. So these men, they did not set out in a storm, and they did not expect a storm but a storm came and you know that's just exactly the way life is things can be fine one moment and the next the bottom just falls out one minute you're enjoying fair weather and the next you find yourself in the middle of a terrible horrible storm one phone call one doctor visit one just tick of the clock and there you are you're in the storm of your life. And this shouldn't surprise us. The Bible says that, that the storms will absolutely come our way. Being a believer does not insulate you from hard times, does not insulate you from the storms of life. No way. The surest promise of Jesus is probably this, that in this world you will have trouble. Now that may not be a promise we necessarily like, but it's true. Life brings us storms. In fact, if you're here today, you are most likely in one of three places. You're either in a storm, just coming out of a storm, or headed into a storm. Sudden storms are a part of our lives. And notice these disciples, they are not in the storm because of some sort of rebellion or disobedience. No, they are with Jesus. They are doing the will of Jesus. He's told, he has told them, get in the boat so we can cross over to the other side. And that's exactly what they did. Now, it is true that we encounter all sorts of chaos because of our bad choices and because of our disobedience, but, but that's not the case here. That's not the case here. And I think that highlights the fact that sometimes, sometimes storms just come. In the middle of God's will, they just come. And our response to storms in those situation, situations is often like that of the disciples. These guys, they look over and they see Jesus asleep. By the way, this is the only place in the Gospels that we read of Jesus sleeping. So they look over and they see Jesus sleeping. 
and their response to his inactivity is similar, so, so similar to ours. Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Sinclair Ferguson, pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, South Carolina, he says, this question, this was the cruelest question they could have asked Jesus. Don't you care was the cruelest thing they could have said to Jesus. Just in the spirit of Mother's Day. Just in the spirit of Mother's Day. This question is almost as cruel as a rebellious teenager looking at their mother and saying to them, Mom, don't you care about me? You're not allowed to ask your mother that question, right? Of course. The sacrifice and the prayer and all that goes into raising a child. You're not allowed to ask a man who's going to die in your place that question. Don't you care that we're perishing? Man, there's, a, there's some spiritual layers to that that we could mine for a while. So his own disciples rebuke him. And let's be honest, we've hurled our own rebukes at God from time to time, have we not? When your family's a mess, when, when your future and your dreams are crashing down on you, haven't you muttered or at least certainly thought, Jesus, don't, don't you care? Do you, do you even know, Jesus, what's happening to me right now? Shocking words maybe when we say them out loud, but I'm sure we've at least thought them. Yet as we ponder that attitude and the, and the attitude of the disciples as they're in this storm, it's important to remember who told these guys to get in the boat. Who told them to get in the boat? Jesus did. Meaning, Jesus led them into the storm. That's the point. Jesus is not afraid of storms. The places that may tempt you to think that he doesn't care about you. Places that, that tempt you to think that he's asleep as to what's going on in your life. Or that he has more important things to set his heart on. Not on miserable, insignificant you. We often think, man, if he loved me, he'd be helping me bail this water out of my boat. If he cared, he'd fix my situation. If he knew what that meant to me, he'd never have taken it away. We rarely, if ever, think, Jesus, I know you have led me into this situation. You've done this for your glory and for my joy. You are here with me, Jesus. I cannot wait to see how all of this is going to cause me to trust in you more completely and to know you more deeply. We don't say that because we don't think Jesus has led us into the storm. But here he has told them to get in the boat. He's led them into the storm. He wants to teach them about who he is and about who they are great hymn. We sang it in the first service. We sang a form of it this morning. How firm a foundation. Reminded of verse 3. When through the deep waters I call thee to go. This is Jesus speaking to you. The rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be near thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress he leads you he's led these disciples into a great 
storm. But these disciples are about to really find out who's in the boat with them. Look at our second point, a great calm, verses 39 and 40. He awoke, Jesus awoke, and he rebuked the wind. The disciples had just rebuked Jesus, so he gets up from his sleep, and he does some rebuking of his own. He says to the sea, peace, be still. No prayer, no appeal to the Father, just the power of a divine The same exact words that he used to quiet the demon-possessed man in chapter 1. Same exact words. And at those words, the wind ceased, and there was a great... The word great, used three times in these six verses, is the prefixed mega. Mega. So one way to read it would be, after Jesus commanded the wind and waves, there was mega calm, meaning there was exceedingly great calm. And what this means is not only did the wind stop blowing and the waves stop raging, it means the waves that had been bringing into the boat, they had actually settled completely. And the water on the Sea of Galilee in every direction was just like glass. And in a storm like the one described here, after the winds maybe died down, the waves would still bounce around probably for a few hours. But in this circumstance, the surface of the water went totally placid. It was still, it was mega calm. So when we think back through Mark's account, not just of the story, but in the entire gospel to this point, Jesus is revealed not only as having authority over teaching, over calling disciples, over sickness and demons and the law and the Sabbath day, he has authority over the entire realm of nature. With a word, the tempest on the sea was done. It was over. It was calm. Just to put this in terms people from Oklahoma can better relate to, it would be like Jesus facing down a tornado. Him looking at the face of it and saying, hush. And the storm completely dissipating. The the wall cloud clearing. The debris cloud completely disappearing. The sun coming out. The birds chirping. Not a lick of wind to be seen. Power. And now that Jesus has rebuked the wind and the waves, he turns and he rebukes the disciples. And he does it with two questions. He says, why are you so afraid and have you still no faith? This is the first of six times in the book of Mark that Jesus is going to ask them why they lack understanding or why they lack faith. If you remember, he's just explained to them that the kingdom of God is going to disproportionately expand like a mustard seed. That they're going to be a part of that expansion. That all the nations of the earth are going to find a place in the kingdom because of their work as his disciples. So through the use of a parable, he's explained how it's all going to happen. Then he takes them out on the boat. They forget the parable. They show no signs of understanding, much less believing what he has just taught them. They are struck with fear, and so Jesus rightly asks, have you no faith? We encounter the storms of life. We maybe can't see how God is going to rescue us. We have his word. We know his promises. They are revealed and plain, and they are the truest things that we've ever set our eyes on, and yet we often live just in such fear. 
We live in a recurring state of trying to wake the master to see if he's interested in delivering us from something he's already promised that he's going to deliver us from. And I'm not saying it's easy to get to this place of faith. I think this is sort of advanced Christian stuff. But to get to a place where we can sing with John Newton, the great hymn writer John Newton, Amazing Grace being his crown jewel, he once wrote, With Christ in the vessel, I can smile at the storm. With Christ in the vessel, I can smile at at the storm. That is a place of great faith. But you need to know this. Neither avoiding great fear or possessing great faith is the real purpose of this passage. So I've addressed that. I certainly think we should talk about that in light of what's written here. But it's not necessarily the purpose. Let's look at our final point, a great fear. Verse 41. At the sight of what the Lord Jesus has just accomplished, we see something very, very striking here. We see these disciples, they go from being afraid to being terrified. That's what the term in verse 41 is pointing out. The 12 are in a state of great fear, mega fear. There's our word again. And, and one would think that, that after the storm is calm, one would think they'd be high-fiving if they high-fived in the first century, or they'd be hugging, or they'd be celebrating that they've been saved from certain death. But no, they are now more afraid than they've ever been in their lives. Why? Because the only thing worse than having a storm outside your boat is having God in your boat. The living God is in their boat. The Creator was controlling His creation and doing so right in front of them. And when they realized it, terror set in. Panic set in. You remember Luke chapter 5? Luke chapter 5, there was another occasion on the sea. It was when Peter couldn't catch any fish. Peter had fished all night, and he caught nothing. So, so Jesus, Jesus shows up, the carpenter shows up, and says to the fisherman Peter, try this on the other side of the boat. Throw your net on the other side of the boat. So Peter throws his net to the other side, and what happened? They had so many fish that they couldn't bring them in. And what was Peter's response to that? It was not, hey, Jesus, stick around. We could make a lot of money together. This business could really take off with you on our team. No, that's not his response. His response was, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. What kind of reaction is that? Well, that's the reaction of somebody who knows that a holy God is standing in front of him that the creator who controls all living things, all the fish in the sea, the creator that holds your life in his hands, he created your life, he sustains your life, he sees your life, he knows everything about you, every single thing, he's in your boat, and that is terrifying before it's comforting. C.J. Mahaney, pastor and author, he says, it's one thing to be in the presence of a great storm, it's another thing to be in the presence of, of a holy God. And you know, these disciples, they they were raised on the Old Testament. They were familiar with the Psalms. They would have known the truth of of a Psalm like Psalm 65, verses 5 to 7. O God of our salvation, 
You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea, being girded with might, you still the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves. Or they might have remembered Psalm 89.9. You rule the swelling of the sea when its waves rise, you still them. Or perhaps Psalm 107. Psalm 107, an exact representation of what had just occurred. Psalm 107, the psalmist writes, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. That happened. Right in front of them, it happened. And so thinking through those verses and others like them, what had just hit these disciples in the mouth was that this, this is the Lord of the universe. This is This is the God of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God of Moses. This is the God of Joshua and David. This is the giver of the law. This is the sovereign over all creation. He is in the boat. Glory itself just took a nap and then got up and ordered the sea to be still. The sea may have been unmanageable, but now they're in the boat with something far more unmanageable. They are in the boat with God, and they are rightly afraid. In the words of C.S. Lewis, who, in his children's books, he writes this, little Lucy asking a question about Aslan, the lion. She says, is he safe? Well, of course he's not safe. Who said anything about being safe? But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's the king. He's good. As I conclude, I want to just read a little excerpt from a book by Tim Keller. He's providing some commentary on this passage that we've been studying this morning. And he says, Mark has deliberately laid out this account, the account at the end of chapter 4 of Mark's gospel. He has deliberately laid out this account Using, the, using language that is parallel, almost identical to the language of the famous Old Testament account of Jonah. Both Jesus and Jonah were in a boat, and both boats were overtaken by a storm. The descriptions of the storms are almost identical. Both Jesus and Jonah were asleep. In both stories, the sailors woke up, and the sleeper, or excuse me, woke up the sleeper and said, We're going to die. And in both cases, there was a miraculous divine intervention, and the sea was calmed. Further, in both stories, the sailors then become even more terrified than they were before the storm was calmed. Two almost identical stories with just one difference. In the midst of the storm, Jonah said to the sailors, in effect, there's only one thing to do. If I perish, you survive. If I die, you will live and they threw him into the sea, which doesn't happen in Mark's story, or does it? I think Mark is showing that the stories aren't actually different when you stand back a bit and look at them with the rest of the story of Jesus in view. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, one greater than Jonah is here, and he's referring to himself that he's the true Jonah. 
He means this, that someday I'm going to calm all storms, still all waves. I'm going to destroy destruction, break brokenness, kill death. How can he do that? He can do it only because when he was on the cross, he was thrown willingly like Jonah into the ultimate storm. Under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us. The storm of eternal justice, of what we owe for our wrongdoing. That storm was not calmed, not until, until it swept the Lord Jesus away. So if the sight of Jesus bowing his head and walking straight into that ultimate storm, the storm that is the cross on which he died, if the sight of his willing and determined posture to die for you is burned into the core of your being, you will never in your life say, God, don't you care that I'm perishing? You won't ever ask that again because you know that Jesus walked through the ultimate storm for you. If he would go to the cross for you, what would ever make you think he would abandon you in the storms that you might be experiencing right now? I've said it before. If God allowed his son to be torn to shreds for you, would he really abandon you? No. No. And you need to let that penetrate the very center of your being. Let that sink in, and you will know that he loves you. You will know that he cares for you, and you know you will know that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And as you live in that truth, you will actually, if you can imagine this, you will actually face life unafraid. And it won't be because you've mastered having such great faith. No, it's not about you. This, this passage is not about you having great faith. It's about the object of your faith. It's not about your great faith. It's because the object of your faith is so great. Jesus Christ is great. Who is this man that even the winds and waves obey him? That question is not only there because the disciples said it, it's there for the reader, you and I, to answer it. Who is this man? Go back to chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's who this man is. That's who this whole story is about, is Jesus Christ, the anointed Messiah, the Son of God. This is news about him. He's the king, I tell you, and he is good. And you and I, we, we can walk in and out of unbelief all the time. And when I say unbelief, I mean unbelief. I, I don't mean just some doubts or some wavering. I, I, mean, I really mean unbelief. But it's not about our unbelief. It's not about our weak faith or our strong faith. By the way, we all have pretty weak faith. It's about the object of our faith. The God of the universe who could stand in a boat and with a word calm a tempest, a storm like these men had never seen. That's our focused attention as we read this story. If we focus on ourselves, if this is about doing away with fear, if this is about somehow conjuring up great faith, man, this story will devastate us every time. But if this is about Jesus Christ and his power over all things 
and his care for us as those who have put our trust in him, whatever small trust that may be, there's great encouragement to be found here. Is there not? Yes, there is. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how rich it is and how full it is and how much we need it. And wherever it is we find ourselves today in a season of, of storms or in one of those seasons where things seem to be smooth sailing, God, we look to you. We look to the Lord Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we just, we just solidify in our own minds what you did to draw us unto yourself and what you did to communicate your enduring care and love and attention toward us. And God, may we never take our eyes off the Lord Jesus. May he be ever in our boat. Lord, and if there's anyone here that has never put their trust in you, never transferred their trust from themselves and seen the Lord Jesus for who he is and what he's done, and God, maybe you're working on that person's heart today, I pray that, that they would do what they need to do to be in right relationship with you, which is to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we all would do that today, that we continually do that as we leave here today and as we live our lives this week. God, bless us as we go from this place. We need grace in all of these things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.